Hi, I'm Rebecca Pete, And I'm Rebecca Cochran. And, and welcome, welcome to Woven, where we strive to be Christians living in the world with intention. And our prayer is that, to paraphrase Mary Zimmer, the Christ who knew Mary and Martha would show us the way of balance. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to Woven. This is episode 40. I can't believe it. We're 10 away from 50 episodes. We are middle-aged. <laughs> Woven is middle-aged. Woven is middle-aged. In many ways. Um, Anyways, um, we are on, um, this is episode 40, and we're Mm -hmm. in the middle, like smack dab in the middle of our Hard Stuff series. If you hadn't had a chance to listen, you can go back, and we've had Becky McCoy on talking about um, grief and and losing her spouse in widowhood. We've Mm -hmm. had Adriel Booker on talking about infertility and, and infant loss. Yes. And we um, had, last week, we had Anna LeBaron on talking about childhood trauma and yeah. the grief that surrounds that and the healing mm-hmm. that surrounds that. And this week, we have my friend Marissa Henley on, and she is um, here to talk lots of things. I'm going to let her talk to you about that. But um, why I wanted to introduce her first before she introduces herself is Marissa and I have known each other for a couple of years now. We, it's just, it's not random because nothing with God is random, but um we went to, she speaks, was it two and a half years ago? Marissa? Yeah, that sounds right. How yeah. is that possible? I don't know how that's possible. <laughs> It'll be three years of summer. I don't know how that's possible. So, um, and we met because we're also in Hope Writers together, which you guys have heard me talk about a lot. A lot of our guests are also in Hope Writers, but um, we, it was kind of like a mixture of both those worlds. So we got together as Hope Writers at She Speaks. And then mm-hmm. after that, we started like a little Voxer group that was just supposed to be like a six week thing. And we are still two and a half years later hanging out and we don't talk as much as we used to, but we still pray for each other. And we've been through, you know, all the fun things of writing and the not fun things and the fun things of life and the not fun things of life. So um, it's been a fun group. So Marissa, welcome. Thank you for Thank coming you. on. And speaking yeah, I'm of excited the, to be here. Yeah. The not fun things of life today, we're going to be talking about loving your friend through a serious illness. Yes. Yeah. So that's yeah. um, our that's, connection here. Yes. Yes. And Marissa's going to talk about that. But before we get to that part of your story, will you just kind of like introduce yourself for our listeners? Sure. Yeah. So I live in Northwest Arkansas with my husband. We've been married for 20 years, which makes me feel so old. (laughs) Um, And we have three kids. I have two boys and a girl, and they are 14, 12, and 9. So life is full and busy in all the best kinds of ways. And I enjoy writing and I enjoy speaking when I get a chance and just sharing my story of how God's been faithful to me through cancer eight years ago and, um, you know, just what that's, what that's looked like and all the things that he's taught me as a result of that. Awesome. So why don't you go a little bit more into the story of your cancer, like when the diagnosis, you said eight years ago, but just kind of the, the, your background story of that for our listeners. Yeah. So it was the day before my 34th birthday that the doctor called me with results of a biopsy that I had had a few days earlier on a lump that I'd found in my breast. And when he called me with the results, I thought that he was going to tell me that it was breast cancer or not breast cancer. But instead, he told me that it was this rare type of cancer that I had never heard of before called angiosarcoma. And I had to ask him how to spell it. I was, you know, trying to find paper and a pencil and I typed it into Google. And one of the first things that I read was that it has a five-year survival rate of about 30%. And at the time, my kids were six, four, and 18 months old. 
Yeah. And, you know, I just, I slammed my laptop shut. And I remember just thinking, okay, if five years from now, I'm not here, you know, what, what does that mean? What will be happening with my kids? And I realized that five years from that point, my daughter would be starting first grade. And I just started begging the Lord from that very moment, you know, please let me live at least long enough to walk her into first grade because I just couldn't imagine not being there at that point in her life and um, in that in that point in the lives of her brothers. And um, so that from the very beginning was honestly the hardest part of it. But um, the Lord was so faithful. He just poured out his peace in in those first minutes and hours and days in a way that I had not experienced before. And so sometimes I struggle, honestly, when I'm figuring out how to talk about this, because I don't want to make it sound like it wasn't hard because it was so, so hard. But I also want to make sure people know that God was so faithful in the midst of that pain and heartbreak and difficulty. So, so that day was hard. Um, and then from there, we ended up going to MD Anderson mm-hmm. in Houston because what I had was so rare and so aggressive and came with a pretty poor prognosis. And so we went there and found a doctor who laid out a treatment plan. I started with some really high doses of chemo. And then I ended up also on a clinical trial. And I ended up having to pretty much live in Houston for several months, which was even worse than the cancer diagnosis because Mm -hmm. I had to go be away from my kids. And that was a lot of logistics to figure out (laughs) um, since I was a stay-at-home mom to three little kids. And now I was living in another state. And um, so I had, oh, about five months of chemo in the clinical trial And then I had five weeks of radiation, which was also in Houston. And then I got to come home for a little bit. And at this point, my diagnosis was in October. At this point, it was June. And I came home for the summer. And then I went back to Houston for some surgery. And that was that was the end of my treatment. So at the end of that, it was almost a year from diagnosis to the point that they said, you have no more evidence of disease. You don't need any more treatment. And um that was a really great feeling. And then I got to find out that that being a cancer survivor is great, but also comes with its own challenges. So I kept going back for scans and, you know, walking through that. But now it's, it's been eight years, and I don't even have to go for scans anymore. I just go to a primary care doctor like a regular person. (laughs) (laughs) It's so great. So I'm just, I'm really thankful. It was a hard, hard season, but I'm, I'm so thankful to be here. And it's a surreal experience because I still walk around almost on a daily basis going, I can't believe I'm still here. (laughs) This is amazing. Like it's 2019 and I'm still here. So I'm just constantly amazed by that. So how did you move from that to where you are now where you're writing about this? And that's not the only thing that you write about. I, I mean, I follow you enough to know that that's not the only thing. But it, I mean, your book is, and I, and I think your, your book that you're currently thinking about writing is also um, about the kind of surrounding the surviving cancer. And so how did you move from like just surviving to like wanting to write about this and talk about this and speak about this? Like, what was that process? Yeah, that's a great question. So I 
had been doing a little bit of blogging before the cancer diagnosis in a super casual, not very intentional way. It was kind of back in the day before we were all on social media. And those of us with little kids would sometimes have a blog and post pictures, you know. (laughs) I miss that. Yeah. It was just enough. Right. It was like it just was. enough. Yeah. Like you're kind of keeping in touch, but you're not like yeah. aware of all the things that everybody's doing all the time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had a blog kind of like that. And then I had a blog where I was sharing, you know, if something really stood out to me from Bible study, I would write about it. So I enjoyed writing. And then when I was diagnosed with cancer, I had a Caring Bridge site to mm-hmm. keep everybody updated. And I found that I also really enjoyed not just sharing the medical details, but sharing the things that the Lord was teaching me mm-hmm. through that suffering. And it was really resonating with people who were following my Caring Bridge for the medical updates when I would also share the other things. And I just saw this phenomenon that when when everything is great in your life and you're saying God is good, that's that's great, but it doesn't really get people's attention, right? Because mm-hmm. they're like, well, yeah, your life is good. Of course you think God is good. But when you're suffering and you're proclaiming how God is good to you in that suffering, it gets people's attention. And then you can point them to Christ and He is glorified in that. And I just, I saw that at work when I was sick. And I think that that is kind of what laid the foundation for what would come later. I just, when it was, when it was over and I was healthy and I was still here, I thought, I don't want to waste any opportunity that I have to talk about the Lord's faithfulness and what he's done for me and the things that he's taught me through it. Um, but in the beginning, I didn't do a lot just because I had a lot of little kids Yeah, <laughs> as they've gotten older. And I've realized that it seems like the Lord is is giving me even more time on this earth than I expected that He would. I've been devoting more of that time to, to writing and speaking. And so this topic of how to support a friend with cancer, which is what my book is about, Loving Your Friend Through Cancer, that was really just the question that I was getting asked all the time. Yeah. When someone would have a friend who was diagnosed, they would call me or text me and say, hey, I don't know what to say. I'm afraid I'm going to get it wrong. Like, how do I help her? Or what can I send in a care package because she lives far away? And so I just was answering that question all the time. Mm-hmm. and. I thought, oh, this is something that people need to know. And if I can just give people some practical advice, tell them what to say, what not to say, what to send in that Mm -hmm. care package, then they feel equipped and empowered to go and help their friend, which is a blessing to them as the helper and a blessing to the friend who's sick. So that's, that's how that book came about, was just answering the question over and over and realizing this is information that's actually useful to people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think for me, um, so my, my mom was diagnosed with a very rare form of breast cancer as well in her forties. Um, mm-hmm. and the prognosis was really bad and she's now, mm-hmm. um, she's now 61 and or 62 and still alive. So well, we kind of went through a similar kind of, she went to MD Anderson and she's in Texas. Okay. My, my family's in Texas. So she very kind of similar story to you. We were obviously older. My mom had me very young. So we, I was already out of the house. Um, my brother, okay. my brother wasn't yet, but anyways, all of that to say, like when your family member goes through cancer, especially a close family member, like your mother, or your father, like there's a certain way that you go about being a support. Like I, I was in Texas a lot and mm-hmm. that there's a way of that being that support and what's expected of you. But I think it's kind of an enigma when a friend goes through or a church, a uh, fellow church member or something goes through cancer or some other kind of like 
illness, um, you know, an illness that's like that, a very long-suffering illness like that, like, it's like, what is your role? Like, you right. kind of know what your role is as a, mm-hmm. as a child um, or a grandchild, but like your role as a friend, like, so can you speak to that a little bit? Like, what did you expect of your friends? And they, they could be good at or bad expectations, but like, what were you wanting from your friends? Mm. Yeah, I think it was really interesting to see how everybody in my life, they each played a different role. And, and the Lord took all of those little pieces of the puzzle and put them all together to provide for all of my needs. And so no one person could meet all of the different needs that I had, the logistical needs, physical needs, need for food, need for prayer, need for emotional support. Like I was so needy, (laughs) Uh, especially when I had to start living in Houston. And so it just was really cool to see how the Lord placed different things on the hearts of my different friends and friends who were close to me and friends who weren't as close. And, you know, I had one friend who had just had her fourth baby. I think her baby was like six weeks old when I was diagnosed. And she couldn't help me transport my kids anywhere because she literally couldn't fit her kids and my kids in her minivan. Right. And so, but I had another friend who lived in my neighborhood who had two kids and she could fit all of our kids in her minivan. And so she drove my kids to school and to piano lessons and to all of those places. And then my friend who didn't have room in her minivan was just a huge emotional support to me. We were on the phone all the time. And then I had another friend who coordinated meals for us for eight months. We had meals three times a week for eight months. And so she coordinated it, but it was other people who were bringing the meals. And so what I saw was that there are different responsibilities that really need to be met by different levels of closeness and the friendship. Yeah. And so one thing that I talk about in the book that, that people have told me is one of the most helpful parts is I talk about different circles of friends and I talk about an inner circle and a middle circle and an outer circle. Yeah. And so your inner circle are like your besties and then the middle circle are kind of people that you might talk to at the gym or in the lobby at church, but you're not necessarily socializing on a regular basis. And then you've got your outer circle that are your acquaintances. And so there are more intimate personal needs that need to be met by inner circle friends. Like you don't want just anybody, you know, folding your laundry and seeing your underwear, (laughs) (laughs) Um, cleaning your toilets, you know, you're not going to pour out all of your fears and Mm -hmm. like deepest, darkest emotions to somebody that you just like, work out on the treadmill next to you every week. So, um, so you need your inner circle friends kind of focused on those more personal things, mm-hmm. but you also need this bigger army of acquaintances who are able to do things like bringing food mm-hmm. and praying for you and sending you notes in the mail and things like that. So I think it's important for people out there who are wondering how to support someone who's going through the hard thing to realize that there are lots of different roles and they're all important. Like those people who were bringing us food were just as important as my best friend who was driving my kids everywhere or, you know, listening to me talk about my fears and all of that. So um, I think everybody has a role to play and then the Lord just works it out to where you have what you need. Yeah. Yeah. There's not like a hierarchy it's yeah. just sort of all, yeah, that's good. I think yeah. we forget that a lot. And we talked about that with 
um, both of our, or all of our other guests about how it's like, you think like, well, I can't do the big thing. So this little thing doesn't matter, but how it really does. And they're all equal Mm -hmm. and they all have different, um, they're all important for different reasons. So that is really good. As you were talking, I was kind of thinking like how the book is loving your friend through cancer, but I imagine it's helpful if you yourself have cancer, because I'm just thinking through somebody who maybe doesn't understand what they should be doing or what their needs are and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Have you had any feedback like that? Cause it's sometimes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, I have. And I was so thankful because when you write a book like that, you kind of feel like you're speaking on behalf of all cancer patients everywhere. (laughs) And I was really nervous about that because I just wanted to steward that well. And hopefully people realize, you know, this is, I'm speaking from my experience. I did talk with a lot of other patients and survivors and caregivers before I wrote it, just to kind of make sure that I was, I was representing us as a group, but, um, but I have heard from from people with cancer or cancer survivors that it was really helpful to them to be able to articulate their needs mm-hmm. and express those needs to their friends. And then I also just do a lot of sharing what I was thinking and feeling and experiencing because I think having that information is helpful to the friends. Mm-hmm. You know, if your friend maybe doesn't say that out loud to you mm-hmm. or doesn't know how to, it took me years <laughs> and a lot of counseling to figure out how to <laughs> put these things to words. Right. And so, um, I do a lot of that in the book. And I think that that has been helpful for people who've had cancer to feel like they're not alone and, you know, what they were feeling when they were going through, it was normal and, um, that other people feel that way too. The circle, uh, and I think that circle analogy can work. It doesn't just work with cancer. Like it could work with a lot of a lot of things when when a friend's going through something or an acquaintance mm-hmm. is going through something. I'm just thinking about me personally. Like sometimes I think that I need to do everything that the inner circle friend's doing when I'm really just an acquaintance, mm-hmm. and I'm yeah. not doing that inner circle stuff. But I think that. I'm not doing enough because I'm not doing that inner circle stuff. And mm. I think, and then the, I, I mean, I, I have had acquaintances that have had cancer, but like other things too, you know, whether it's the loss of a parent or um, a loss of a child or some other kind of sickness or mm. what, you know, whatever that you have to help your, your friends with, like just thinking about those different circles is super helpful. And it kind of helps you to remember kind of like, where your place is and not to feel guilty if it's not that other place, because at some point I probably am going to have to help someone who's on the inner circle, Mm -hmm. you know, like my closest friends, but like, that's not everybody that's suffering. Like I don't need to be the inner circle for every single person, all of my Facebook friends or whatever, you know, like that's not not, like, that's not what God's expecting from me. Mm -hmm. So that's really helpful. Yeah. And I, I know from, for me, I tend to forget that God's using other people and not just me. (laughs) I I kind of tend to think I'm the center of the universe and, you know, I need to be the main helper for every person who's hurting. And it's been, it's been really cool. I've had some experiences where there's a need and I know about the need and I am trying to figure out how I can meet the need, but I really can't Mm -hmm. because it wasn't mine to meet. And then when I tell the person that I can't do that thing, they're like, Oh yeah, somebody else is already doing that. Oh, right. Okay. God's using other people here. (laughs) I can trust him to meet my friend's needs, even if I can't, that he'll, he'll bring someone else along to do that, provide for them in some way. So that has been a lesson that I have definitely 
learned over the last several years that's been really helpful to me just in, you know, dealing with some of that, that guilt or that desire to want to do everything for everyone. But I'm, I'm not called to God's not asking me to do that. Yeah. Yeah. So you had talked about being in counseling to kind of go through to kind of process your cancer diagnosis and all that. Can you talk a little bit more about your kind of emotional journey from because you said like, you knew God was faithful, you knew he was good. But can you talk a little about your humanity and just walking through that diagnosis? Yeah. You know, it's amazing to me looking back at how God was really preparing me for that trial. Mm-hmm. And there was this summer Bible study that I was a part of a little over a year before my diagnosis that was focused on the character of God. And I learned so much about his goodness and his faithfulness and um, his grace and his mercy, his holiness, his sovereignty, just, you know, all of those things. And it was such a great foundation for me when this hit. And so I felt like the Lord really allowed me to be able to kind of hold these two things in tension that mm-hmm. what I was going through was really hard and not good, but that he was good in all things. But it was this constant wrestling, mm-hmm. right? And and um my theology of suffering, I guess, walking into that, my tendency was to want to just kind of slap a happy Jesus sticker on every hard thing. Like, it's okay, because God is good. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So and I would, I would say those things to people who are suffering. I loved to quote Romans 828 to people who were suffering and tell them that God was going to work all of this for good. (laughs) And um, because that was just kind of my reaction to suffering. And so as I walked through this and I was really grappling with if I die and my kid's story is I lost my mom when I was two years old or five years old or seven years old, like, could I believe that God was good in the midst of that? And that was not a hypothetical question for me. (laughs) That was like, that was real life. And so, um, So I think that wrestling through that and getting to the point of saying the answer to that question is yes, God is good and God is good if I survive and God is good if I don't survive, but this is not good. Like it is not, Mm -hmm. it is not good for a child to lose their mom, but God will use it for good because without being the author of sin or evil or, you know, those, those hard things, he's still in control. He is still sovereign over those things. And his character is still his character, despite Mm -hmm. what's happening in our circumstances. So I think that I kind of ended up at the end of all of that wrestling process, which not to say it's over. I mean, I still try to figure these things out. And if you interviewed me 10 years from now, I might, you might give some different answers, but um, I do think I've, I've come a long way in understanding that God is good, but these things are still hard Mm -hmm. (laughs) and we can't gloss over that. You know, we just have to live in the tension of this is excruciatingly difficult and God is exceedingly good. And I don't always understand how those two things fit together, (laughs) but I believe both of those things are true. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It totally makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, um, 
that that's just a constant like scale, a uh, tipping scale, right? Like I think we all said that even, even if a person listening today is like, I haven't been through cancer or like when we've talked about right. losing a child or um, losing our husband or whatever, like we still constantly sit on that tipping scale of things are hard, but God mm-hmm. is good. And like, we, we have to come every day readjust ourselves because we can fall yeah. to one side or the other. Yeah. And it's just um, f- trying to, f- constantly find that balance is hard yeah because we all sit in some kind of grief yeah I mean yeah and that's really I guess what we're talking about well I mean you know we we live in we live in a world that's not perfect so we have to constantly be wrestling that so So I'm wondering I mean like so like you said this was not hypothetical for you like um I think about that stuff those are some of my fears like what if something happens to me what if my kids grow up without a mom like those are things I worry about but so far knock on wood, I have not had to deal with them. But how, what was that like for you going from like literally facing your own mortality and being afraid to now you're back in life, things Mm -hmm. are back to normal. Like, what does that look like for you? It looks really different now in 2019 than it did in like 2011, 2012. Those Mm -hmm. early years of survivorship, were still really, really difficult because the cancer that I had has a tendency to come back quickly. Mm-hmm. And when it comes back, there's not necessarily a whole lot that they can do. And so I lived with a lot of fear for, for oh, I mean, I still do, but it has definitely gotten better than it was in those early years. So in those early years of survivorship, I was still pretty sure that I probably didn't have a lot of years with my kids. And I, um, was really determined to do everything I could to prepare the people around me to lose me, mm. which is a lot of pressure. <laughs> like I, I'm not just wanting to raise my kids in a way that is, you know, obedient and faithful to what the Lord's asking me to do over the course of the next 18 years. I'm trying to do that in like the next six months, just in case, like, yeah. That's how I was living. Like, what do my kids need to know? I need to tell them all the things right now. Um, and so in some ways that was not good because I was kind of a basket case of stress, like trying to do all the things. Um, and I think also for me personally, it was a lack of trust in the yeah. Lord and like a not understanding that he would give me, he will give me exactly the number of days on this earth that I need to do the things he's asking me to do. That took me a few years to figure out. So in the (laughs) beginning, I was like, trying to do all the things. But it was also really good because it made me laser focused Mm. as a wife and a mom and a friend and a follower of Christ as far as what's really important. Like, what are the main things that I want my kids to know? And how do I want to be investing in them and discipling them and pouring into them. Um, How do I want to spend these days that God has given me? Because it's totally cliche, but it's also really true that I don't, I don't take this for granted. And, you know, not that I don't have bad days and not that I don't sit and waste time, (laughs) but I think it did give me this awareness of um, really wanting to make the best use of the time that God had given me. So, um, so yeah, I think that it it was definitely it was hard, but it was also really good and I think it has really shaped who I am and how I think about things and it's it's just a very different perspective than I had before. So how do you think how it's you, affected your kids? Um how has it shaped them 
and their view of God. And um, because, you know, your older, your older children were, I mean, your 18 month old, obviously doesn't probably doesn't have much memories from that year, but your older kids probably do. So, and the the couple years after of your survivorship, like how, how have you seen that um, good and bad play out in them? You know, it is such a beautiful thing. One of the things that we prayed for when I was sick is that the Lord would protect my kids' minds. And we were honest with the boys. You know, we used the word cancer. They understood, you know, on a six and four-year-old level (laughs) what was going on. But they honestly remember almost none of it. And it is amazing to me. And I think it's just an answered prayer that the Lord really did protect their minds. They They remember me losing my hair. They remember me having a clown wig that I wore because it made them laugh. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't wear it out of the house very much, <laughs> but, um, but I wore it for the kids to just try to bring some lightheartedness to the situation. That is, that's all that they remember. They don't remember that they had a nanny and that I lived in Houston. And, um, and I'm so thankful for that. And so, but I do think that it. I think it's just affected our family in general. And it's interesting because I've thought a lot about it and I don't know obviously what our family would have been like if I hadn't had cancer, but my kids are all really grounded in the truth of God's character. They, they know that in part because I, that was the thing I most wanted to teach them. So I've been teaching them that from a really young age and they're also really close with each other. Mm. And, um, and I think that that is really beautiful, even as my boys are, are getting into their teenage years. And that was something that I really tried to foster. And it was honestly motivated by fear in those early years, because I thought, I want them to be close. I want them to have each other yeah. if they lose me. You know, I want them to have that support system with, with my husband, too. But I just thought it would be those sibling relationships could be really important for them. And, um, and I think sometimes I, I wonder if they maybe understand enough to know how fortunate they are to have me because they all we're all just still really close (laughs) and um and so I think that they even if it's not really articulated and now that I I do talk about it um, about cancer and and all of that a lot I think they do know that there was a chance that they would have not had me and so I think that does kind of play into those relationships yeah, on an extremely smaller scale than this. Um, it's funny how your kids react when you're sick. Um, so uh, we were talking before we started recording. Um, I was really, really the sickest I've been in a very long time a couple of weeks ago. And I mean, I couldn't move one of the days, but actually for two days. And um, my daughter, my daughter is not one to share emotions um, very readily. She just doesn't talk about them. And um, she wrote me a letter. <laughs> And it was literally, I think, I think she thought I was going to die because like her, the letter was so kind and she was thanking me for everything I had ever done for her. And like, at first I got it and I was like, oh, that's so sweet. She wants me to feel better. And then I got to thinking about it and I was like, I think she thinks I'm going to die. Like the way it was written, it was almost like a eulogy. And so, (laughs) and so, I mean, obviously this is a much lighter, I had strep throat cancer, but like, um, it's just funny how I, I do think that when kids kind of feet are put to the fire where they see, because I think our kids, our kids um, take 
us for granted. A lot of people's kids take their parents for granted. I, I t- have taken mm-hmm. my parents for granted before, before they've gotten sick with things and that, that they're just always going to be there. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. and then when, when you get nervous that something might be wrong, mm-hmm. then, then you realize, Oh wow, my mom or my dad does so much. What am I going to do without them? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it was just funny. I took a picture of it um, just in case I lose it because there will also be a day where she probably tells me she hates me too. So uh, <laughs> right. you've got this other stuff in writing. <laughs> exactly. I've got it in proof, in proof. So it's just right. interesting to think about how your kids, even if they weren't really aware of what was going on, they, they sensed mm-hmm. that there was an urgency to your relationship and, and that it has caused them to just like really appreciate that you're there and that, yeah. You're, yeah. that you're still around. Yeah. So that's awesome. And not just our kids, but I mean, everybody, right? Yeah. So like, what was it like with your husband? Oh, how, that's a great question. How did that play out? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because we were both just in total survival mode because mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he obviously was working. And when I was in Houston, he was kind of like a single dad. And so we had help during the day, but then he would come home and be feeding kids dinner and doing bath time and getting kids to bed, you know, every night by himself. Cause even when I was at home, I would be, go- I would be in Houston for two weeks and then I'd be home for a week. But the week that I was home was when I was the sickest mm-hmm. after that round of chemo. And so I really, I wasn't able to do much of anything. And, um, so we, we really didn't talk about it very much because we just were both, trying to get through what we could get through. But he was really just such a rock for me during that time. I mean, he just served so sacrificially and never complained and never asked for a break. And, um, you know, just really got in there and did everything that needed to be done. And, and then he has always been completely convinced that I'm fine and it's not coming back. And I've always not been so convinced, but I think it's been really good for me that he is so sure about that because if he was scared too, it'd probably really freak me out. (laughs) Um, I've been really thankful just for his confidence in that and that that helps me to cope with the fear that I have Mm -hmm. to know that, but he's not worried, or at least that's what he's telling me. (laughs) um, Yeah. So yeah, I think it definitely brought us closer because I mean, how can you not admire and respect a man that just jumps in and does that and, um, you know, doesn't complain and doesn't think about himself. And he just cared for all of us so well during that time. I was so thankful. So how, how do you, how is your relationship different? I mean, obviously after 20 years, you're, I mean, my husband and I are about to be at 18 years. So I, I, obviously your relationship morphs anyways, but I'm assuming this morphed it even more. So how, what difference do you see in that relationship from before you had cancer to now? I think on the positive side, just the whole not taking each other for granted, you know, just so thankful to be growing older with him. (laughs) I hope to actually grow old with him, but, um, you know, just, I didn't, I didn't think we'd celebrate a 15th anniversary. And so to be able to celebrate a 20th anniversary is, um, is just really great. And so I think that we just have an appreciation for, for what we have. Mm -hmm. And I'm thankful for that. We definitely did have some challenges though, too, because I think that it was a grief process for each one of us, just grieving 
what we'd been through. I was grieving the lost time with the kids. I was grieving anticipated losses that could come. I was grieving just that naive sense of longevity that I had had (laughs) before finding the lump in my breast. Um, And and then he was grieving really differently. He was grieving a different set of things and grieving as a man, which is very different than grieving as a woman. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and the other thing that we had to really work through in the early years is that when I came back from Houston and I was done with treatment and I didn't know how much healthy time I had with the kids, I wanted to be super fun mom all the time. Mm-hmm. And even though we both had been pretty committed disciplinarians pre-cancer. I kind of fell off that wagon a little bit (laughs) (laughs) because I just, you know, wanted my kids to have happy fun memories of their mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, okay, but someone has to tell them no sometimes. And that was him. And, um, (laughs) so, and he was, he was right. He was completely the one he was in the right and but we just weren't on the same page in parenting for a Mm -hmm. while and so that was one thing that we had to work through so I think that going through a hard thing like that in a marriage definitely can work for good and strengthen the marriage and the relationship but sometimes you're surprised at the things that pop up that can be issues that you have to work through like I never would have thought that cancer could lead to disagreements about parenting yeah yeah it did you know we had to work through that yeah it's very interesting. I, I you know, I, I talk to, you know, you just talk to people and you, you find out like what kind of different strains it puts on your marriage. You know, you hear the stories of, you know, a kid getting diagnosed with something and the parents really yeah. struggling. It's just, it does put, it does put um, some strain and it puts on, it puts strain on the other siblings. And obviously this mm. it wasn't one of the siblings that got sick, but it just, it, it creates different dynamics in the relationship. So that's, yeah. that's good. So yeah. Um, another question we've been asking people or our guest in this um, series is what um, encouraged you, you know, music, certain scriptures, um, different, you know, authors, like what in the midst of that suffering did, did you um, cling to? Obviously, you cling to Jesus, but there, there had to be other things that like supported you and encouraged you. So what, what were some of those things? Yeah, that's a great question. I It was a very interesting experience for me going through chemo because um, it's really hard to explain if you haven't been through it, but it's like this giant fog settles into your brain yeah. and it makes it really hard to focus. Mm. Um, it was almost impossible for me to read anything mm-hmm. and like keep up with what it was saying. Yeah. And I really couldn't even watch... TV. I could watch like say yes to the dress or like <laughs> reality TV type things that didn't have a storyline that I had yeah. to follow. <laughs> but like watching a movie with a plot that I had to keep up with for two hours, my brain just couldn't do it. It was really bizarre. And so because of that, it made it really hard for me to study the Bible or even read the Bible for myself and find those things that I was needing to cling to. And so it was really helpful when people would text me or send me a note in the mail, especially notes in the mail are the best with a scripture that was talking about God's comfort or God's presence with me, um, God's care for me in those circumstances. And so I really was relying on, on other people to kind of give me that in little tidbits. 
and was so thankful for those those messages because I, I received a lot of them and they were really encouraging. And then the other thing that surprised me is I had spent the years before that listening to these CDs with my kids called Seeds Family Worship. I love yeah. Seeds. Seeds. Yes. Love Seeds so much. And so um, I those were stuck in my head. <laughs> like I'm not a great scripture memorizer, but these Seeds songs were stuck in my head. So I would just find myself humming like, God is our refuge and strength and ever present help in trouble. Okay, I can't believe I just sang on your podcast. <laughs> not a singer um, <laughs> but um but you know like those yeah. those verses from the seeds family worship would be playing in my head even though I couldn't sit and read the psalms um I had so many of the psalms that were so comforting like that in my head from those seeds family worship cds and I was really thankful for that that's awesome. I know I was talking to um, my my um, older daughter's nine, and we were talking about scripture memory the other day because at church they do it in class, and you know mm. they get awarded for memorizing scripture. And um, mm. she was like, "Why do we memorize scripture?" And um, this is a good example of that yeah. um, because when you when you remember it as a kid you don't ever forget it. Like sometimes as an adult, you memorize stuff and then you forget it. But like I was talking to a friend the other day whose daughter is in fifth grade and is memorizing the state capitals. And I like started singing the song from fourth or fifth grade of the state capitals, you know? And I'm like, how do I remember that? But I can't, and I can't remember to like move the laundry, you know? It was just really funny. But, um, but I was telling, that's what I was telling my daughter was like, and I was kind of telling her a story um, that I had read of a, of someone who had been in prison and obviously didn't have um, access to scripture. And so, I mean, that's a very extreme circumstance, but like, just, you don't never know when you're going to need it and you're not going to have access to it. Cause in her brain, you always have access. You can Google it on the phone. You can pick up your Bible, but like, that is a perfect example of feeding your heart when times are good. Mm -hmm. So that when times are bad and you can't dig for those things that they're already there. They're already in yeah. your heart and in your spirit. So that's a really, that's you a really good message. You plant seeds. You plant seeds like seeds of worship. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's part of the reason why that. I'm sure that's exactly why. Right. <laughs> you probably thought of that. Yes. <laughs> you worship people. Yeah. So that's just a just a really good reminder for those of us that aren't currently going through something hard. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. that this is the time to like be feeding ourselves so that when bad times come and they will, it may not be cancer, it may be something else, but, um, we have that to lean on. So that's a really, that's a really good point. I remember my mom telling me about chemo brain. Um, yeah, she, she was just like, and I think it's hard to describe if you've never had it and I don't understand it because I've never had it, but I remember her telling me, you know, like I would try when I would go visit her, we would try to watch TV or do something mm-hmm. like that. And she's just like, I can't concentrate. I don't know what's going on. And it was, mm-hmm. she, I mean, she's in her forties, you know? So it was like, you're yeah. like, what? I don't understand. And even yeah. now she says, and you can speak to this too, probably. She says that, you know, sometimes it, it's still foggy. Things can oh, be foggy. for sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it, my brain is not the same. I mean, it's not nearly as bad as during chemo, but it's, it's definitely not the same as, as before cancer. So that's kind of a constant humbling, causing me to depend on the Lord because mm. writing a book <laughs> with uh, with chemo brain, I would literally write a chapter and then pull it out the next week to edit it. And I didn't remember having written it 
be like, oh, well, this is good. I, <laughs> that would be, that's so funny. Really that's funny. Experience. I feel like mom brain's a little like that. I was going to ask you, is it like when you have a newborn? Is it similar? It is similar, but it's a lot worse. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, during chemo, I mean, it was like this completely different level. But yes, like the type that I'm living with now, uh-huh. eight years later, it is probably similar to like newborn brain. Like yeah. I'm just kind of out of it and I... I don't make, I don't transition well. Like if someone changes the subject really abruptly in a conversation, sometimes I don't follow them. Or if I see somebody out of context who I really should know, I have no idea who they are. (laughs) My brain is just weird. It's an adventure. I have to remind myself of that um, with with my mom um, Mm -hmm. in that because um, I, you know, sometimes I'm, and I just talk very fast. Um, okay. Shocking, yeah. I know. Rebecca's uh, on like 1.5. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, never need, you never need to speed me up on Boxer. Um, it's totally fine. Um, so yeah, no, I, um, and so sometimes I get frustrated when we're having conversations mm-hmm. and hers is, you know, she's like 10 or 15 years past and, and yeah. she'll, she'll stop me sometimes. And she's like, remember I, or she'll like retell me something that she's told me before. And it's yeah. like, I mean, she's only 62. It's not dementia. She just, she'll tell you. She yeah. was like, I still have like some days where the chemo brain is still there. So I think that's really yeah. helpful for those of us who haven't gone through cancer to remember. Like, cause I think we think, oh, you're cancer free now. Everything's the same again. Like you've gone back to normal, but it's yeah. like having kids. Like yeah. you don't ever go back to how you were pre-kids. You like, right. yeah, it's, it, you're better than you were in the middle of it, but you're not the same. Well, and it's just right. like a good word to remember too, that, I mean, the way people are is usually not about us, but I think sometimes like if someone like forgets my name or like, and they should know it, I'll be like, oh my gosh, like they don't remember me or, or just little <laughs> things like that. And, um, you're <laughs> laughing at me. It's not just a four thing. I'm just <laughs> but it's really good to remember I mean like we just don't know what people are going through we just don't know ever so it's it's just such a good reminder that like if somebody like is struggling to keep up in a conversation or like whatever it is just to have grace with people in general because whether or not they know you've been through cancer or whatever it's just yeah yeah it's a good point yeah 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 Yeah. it's great so we're getting close to being done, but is there anything else you wanted to share um, about to those people out there that maybe are either going through cancer, who have a friend going through a cancer or a family member? I'm sure with all of our listeners, somebody's been there, done mm-hmm. that, or is currently doing that. Like what, what would you like them to know? I think the main thing that I want people to understand. Okay. I'll give two things. Okay. One is that when someone is hurting, I think the best thing that we can do is just to move toward them instead of away from them Mm -hmm. and be willing to risk the awkwardness of getting it wrong or saying the wrong thing or feeling like you may feel like you said the wrong thing because they start crying or whatever it is, but that doesn't even mean that it was wrong. It was good that you moved toward that person and try to encourage and support them rather than avoiding them or, you know, moving away because you're afraid or you don't know what to do. So saying something, doing something is better than not, even if you, even if you get it wrong and kind of dovetailing with that is the idea that none of us are going to be the perfect friend to Mm -hmm. people who are hurting. We are all going to get it wrong at some point. I mean, I have been writing and speaking about this for years and I still get it wrong sometimes, (laughs) but we do have a savior who is the perfect friend to those who are hurting. And so I think 
we need to be aware that we're not the perfect friend, but there is one who is, and we can trust him to perfectly care for our friends and to use our imperfect efforts as a part of that plan that he has to care for them. So that's, I think that's the most important thing to know is we're, we're trying to figure all of this out. Show up anyway. Yeah. Yeah. My, my tendency is to, to, uh, this plays out in so many areas of my life, but my tendency is to like hold back because of fear of, it's not just a fear of getting it wrong, but just a fear of the vulnerability and the intimacy that's involved in that. Mm-hmm. And like, or this, well, I don't want to get, I don't want to get too much up in their business. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I, this, this fear that like, you're, you're going to get in the way or, mm-hmm. um, or you're, it's not, it's sometimes for me, it isn't not doing it right, but it's also, of I want to give them space, mm-hmm. but yeah. I, I think sometimes I tell myself that just because I don't want to get myself involved because of a myriad of other reasons, but it is this, like, I, I, I want to get, make sure they have enough space, but what, how that reads to the other person I would think is that I'm scared to, to come towards them or to be there mm-hmm. for them. Um, and it's just, I need to constantly remind myself that I need to to just sit there with my friends and be there with my friends. Yeah. yeah. Um, I tend to be a lot like Job's friend. I, t- I tend to be like Job's friend sometimes too, where I sit and I know this is shocking, but I sit and I talk <laughs> I <know> right? <laughs> um, instead of just keeping my mouth shut and just sitting there. Um, so yeah. I'm learning on a daily basis how to do that better. So. It's so hard. But it's it is hard so hard. for me too, Rebecca. <laughs> Okay. Do you have any other thoughts? No, this has been really good. Um, We'll definitely link to your book. I think it is such a good resource um, Mm -hmm. for anybody dealing with any sort of illness in general, not even cancer, but long-term illness. So that is really good. Yep. I think that's it. And yeah, I think, and we'll make sure we link to all your social media and um, Marissa does a good job of writing on a regular basis, which I'm trying to get better at, but you're good about getting <laughs> like putting encouraging words out there on a very consistent basis. So I'm appreciative of that. So well, it has you. been I, a pleasure started. talking to you. Mm-hmm. What were you going to say, Marissa? Oh, sorry. Oh, I just was saying that the only reason I write regularly is that I started writing these Monday devotionals a couple years ago, and my 95-year-old grandmother really loves them, oh. and so oh. I can't stop. <laughs> it's not wonderful. that I'm a super disciplined writer. I'm I'm doing it for my grandma. So. Oh, you're so sweet. Well, it, it's good for That's everybody right. else that reads it, too, but that is very sweet. That's sweet. That's awesome. Yeah. Your grandmother's holding you accountable. Right. (laughs) That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay, Marissa, it was so good to talk to you. Thanks for having me on. Okay.